Father, that is our confession of faith today, that we believe in you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we come to you today in humble reliance upon your grace and your truth, asking that you would lead and guide us. God, we love you, and we love this congregation. Lead us in how to be the people of God in our community. Today and in the days of come, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Morning on our annual State of the Church Sunday when we have our, our congregational meeting. Um, and typically on our day of our congregational meeting, I give a kind of State of the Church, State of Glenkirk message. Our culture around us feels like it's shifting under our feet. Many of these shifts started quietly in the 1970s, but they really started gaining momentum in the 1990s. And now in the 2020s, these shifts have resulted in an earthquake of changes in the church and religious landscape in our culture around us. And one shift I want to talk about is the rise of a group called the nuns. No, I'm not talking about Catholic nuns like Mother Teresa. The nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are people who check the nun box when they're asked about their religious identity or their religious preference in a national survey. Nuns are people who say that they have no religious affiliation. Back in the 1950s, people who checked the nun box comprised just 1% of the U.S. population. Today, they make up more than 22%. And that makes nuns the fastest-growing religious group in America today. One in five nuns identifies as an atheist. Another one in five say that they're agnostics. But the vast majority, three out of five nuns, say that they're just nothing in particular. Now, this summer, I've been reading a lot about this emerging group in our culture, the nuns. I read a book called Nonverts about the reasons why people leave their churches and become nuns. I also read Russell Moore's new book, Losing Our Religion about how political culture wars and church scandals have contributed to the rise of this group. But the most interesting book I read during the summer is simply called The Nuns by an author named Ryan Burge. Ryan Burge is a social science professor at Eastern Illinois University who also happens to be a pastor of a church. And Burge points out in his book that this rapid growth of this group called the nuns is happening in every demographic group around us, young and old, married and single, college-educated, those without a college degree, Republicans and Democrats, wealthy and poor. It's happening all around us. Back in 1999, 70% of Americans were members of a church or a house of worship. But by 2020, that number had dropped down to 47%, uh, a loss of more than 20 percentage points in two decades. 
And so now, for the first time in U.S. history, the majority of people living in our culture are not members of a church or other house of worship. 20 years ago, Sunday worship attendance at the average church in America was 137 people on a Sunday. Today, that number's dropped to 65. And that's why many churches are laying off staff or slashing budgets, merging with other congregations, or looking for alternative income sources. Now, undoubtedly, in this time, some churches have been growing, especially large non-denominational churches. Over the last 10 years, large non-denominational churches have added more than 6 million members at the same time while overall church attendance in the U.S. has been declining. And that means that a lot of the large church growth has come from smaller churches, not from reaching new people with the good news of Jesus. Now, Ryan Burge says that there's probably no single reason why this is happening. He uh, points to a lot of factors that he thinks are important, like the rise of online religious communities, changes in marriage and family, growing distrust of religious institutions because of public scandals, and an increased connection between churches and partisan politics. Now, in many ways, here at Glenkirk, we've been pretty fortunate in the midst of all this. Um, Our giving has remained the same pretty much as what it was prior to the pandemic. And over the last 12 months, we've seen a 20% increase in our average in-person worship attendance from a year ago. Over the last 12 months, we helped plant La Casa Church back in November. We've added 33 new members here at Glenkirk, some of them brand new believers. We've baptized 10 children of members. At VBS, we had more than 300 campers and student helpers indicate a decision to follow Jesus, either as a first time or as a recommitment decision. But we're still not what we were five years ago. And we're not what we were a decade ago. The church in America is living in a season of scarcity. And so I want to talk today in my State of the Church message about flourishing during a season of scarcity. And one of my favorite stories about this is found in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word today from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to the side. 
So she left and shut the door behind her and her sons. And she, they brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, Elisha, and, sa- and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left, says the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. The prophet Elijah lived in the ninth century before the coming of Jesus, and it was a dark time in Israel's history. Israel was divided against itself into a southern and a northern kingdom. Israel's borders had shrunk to the smallest they had ever been. They were surrounded by powerful nations constantly threatening their security. Many of the people of God in Israel were compromising their faith. They were caught up in political intrigue or consumed by greed instead of living out their covenant promises to be the people of God on behalf of God to the nations. It was a time of scarcity. Scarcity of faith, scarcity of resources, scarcity of truth, scarcity of love. And into this season of scarcity, God raised up prophets like the prophet Elisha. And in this story, one of Elisha's fellow prophets has died. And that prophet's widow comes to the prophet Elisha desperate. Her husband has left outstanding debts that she can't afford to pay. And she's afraid that if she can't pay those debts, she'll lose her sons into debt slavery. And Elisha wants to help her. He asks her if she has anything of value at all. And at first she says no, but then she remembers that she has one small jar of olive oil. Now back then, olive oil was a valuable, precious commodity. But all she had is one small jar, an insignificant amount compared to the debt that she owed. So Elisha tells her to borrow as many empty jars as she can from the neighbors around her. And then he instructs her to close the door and to pour the olive oil from this small jar into all of these empty jars. And miraculously, her small jar of olive oil keeps on flowing until the very last borrowed jar is filled to the brim. And then Elisha tells her, to sell the olive oil, to pay off her debt, and that she and her sons can live off the rest. God abundantly provides for his people during a season of scarcity. And let me share a couple of principles that I think apply to us. The first principle is this, scarcity makes us desperate. When we are in a season of scarcity, we often panic. And panic, desperation, rarely leads us to make good decisions. In scarcity, we can only see what we don't have, or maybe what we used to have, but that we no longer have. And in that desperation, that panic, we often try to grasp what we once had. 
It's like the pastor I read about whose church is facing budget shortfalls. And so rather than try to cut the budget, they've decided to lease out part of their property to marijuana growers to make their church budget. Imagine growing onto that property on a Sunday morning. Scarcity leads to desperation. But abundance begins with what we have. God's abundance starts with what we have. It doesn't start with what we lack. All this woman had was a small jar of olive oil. Compared to her debt, it seemed tiny and insignificant. But that's what God wanted to use to bring his abundance. We have a great congregation here at Glenkirk. I love who we are and who we are becoming. But we're not exactly what we were five years ago. And we're not exactly what we were a decade ago. Abundant ministry begins with who we are today and giving it to God. Abundance starts with what we have. And then finally, when we are faithful to God with what we have, God will ensure that it will be enough for God's mission. God will ensure that what we have will be enough for what God wants to do. You know, I used to think this story was about the widow and her faith. I wondered if she had borrowed a, a, a hundred more empty jars, if she might have walked away wealthy from the proposition. And I, I wondered if perhaps she had limited God's blessing by how many jars she borrowed. But now I see this story as not about the widow at all. As with most stories in the Bible, the hero of the story is God. It's not the widow. It's not the prophet Elisha. This story is about God and God's generosity to provide for this woman and her family exactly what she needed. Nothing more and nothing less. See, it's easy for us to imagine how faithful we could be with resources that we don't have. It's not as easy to be faithful with what we actually do have. I've been a pastor for 32 years now. In that time, I've pastored at a Christian university and at four different congregations, including Glenkirk for the last four and a half years. My first church that I was a pastor at grew from 200 to about 1,200 over 15 years. The, the church I came to before I was at Glenkirk struggled to maintain its membership of 4,000. And the church I pastored in between those two churches was a church plant that never had more than 30 people. So I've pastored at mega churches and micro churches. I've had big budgets and no budget. I've been paid and unpaid as a pastor. And the key at every congregation I've been at was for it to accept what it was and to be faithful to God with what it had. If we are faithful to God with who we are and what we have, God will ensure that it will be enough to do all that God wants to do. Nothing more and nothing less. People sometimes ask me what my strategic plan is 
for Glenkirk in the years ahead. And in the past, when I've taught courses on church leadership at, at Talbot Seminary and at APU Seminary, I've always told students in those courses that until a, a church has a common sense of mission, a shared sense of who they are and why they exist, strategic plans aren't of much value. And so for the last four and a half years here at Glenkirk, my leadership focus has been on our who and on our why, our sense of mission as a congregation. In 2019, our elders revised our mission statement for the first time in decades. It now reads that our mission is that we are a worshiping community, inviting everyone to join in the journey of becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, loving God and his world. Back in September of last year, I did a four-week teaching series on this mission that focused on each of the four verbs in that mission of worship, invite, become, and love. And we put those words on our walls of our sanctuary. So every time we came into worship, we were invited of our who and our why as we gather to worship. Because the greater our commitment to a common mission, who we are, and why we exist, the more unified we can be in moving forward with the where and the how. The who and the why come first, and the where and the how follow. We've had a good year at Glenkirk over the last 12 months. I think we're close to making our budget projections. New people have been coming in. We've seen people come to faith in Jesus, confess that faith among us. We've seen people growing in their faith. And as we look ahead to our next budget year that begins September 1, I want to propose four congregational-wide goals for the next 12 months that are all connected to our mission, our who and our why. To the extent that we share in this mission, the who and the why, to that extent, we're going to be able to tackle these four goals together, the where and the how. The first goal relates to worshiping and inviting, those two parts of our mission statement. And that's to see our average in-person worship attendance grow by another 20% the next 12 months. To grow by 20%. Now, why is that important? It's not just to get bigger because bigger is better. And it's not to try to recapture something from our past. It's important because people need Jesus today. That's the bottom line. And unfortunately, there are churches out there that have gotten distracted from introducing people to Jesus. There are churches that'll tell you how to improve yourselves. They'll introduce you to friends. They'll even tell you how to vote. But many have gotten distracted from introducing people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus and then helping them grow in that relationship. And that's what people need more than anything. This goal is also important because first and foremost, we are a worshiping community. Worship is something that we will do forever, long after we've left this earth. Without consistently worshiping together, our faith in Jesus shrivels, our discipleship goes backwards, our vision of God's greatness begins to shrink. Worship 
together is what keeps the focus on God and prevents us from making the focus on ourselves. Our worship attendance has grown over the last 12 years. But a lot of that growth has been people returning from online worship from the pandemic. And we hope people keep coming back who are worshiping online. But another 20% this next year would mean a lot of new people coming through our doors. Families and empty nesters, men and women, young and old, married couples, single people, all kinds of people coming through our doors. Our mission says that we want to invite everyone to join in the journey of following Jesus together with us. So seeing an increase in worship attendance will mean inviting and then welcoming the people that we invite. People who look differently than we do, who vote differently than we do, who are in different stages of life than we are. It will mean stepping out of your comfort zone to notice who's new and take the initiative to get to know them. It will require us breaking out of our already tightly knit group of friends to practice hospitality to those around us that don't yet have a tightly knit group of friends. A second goal relates to the becoming part of our mission. To see 250 people participate in our fall discipleship groups. Next week, we start a new series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it Reformed. And as part of this series in October, we're going to start some short-term, seven-week discipleship groups that are centered around what we're learning from the Sermon on the Mount. We want to start as many of these groups as we can, both in people's homes and here at Glenkirk. Uh, Pastor Kate has been working on the, the curriculum for these groups all summer long. And what we really need are leaders, hosts, and then participants to be in these seven-week groups. Cindy and I are planning to lead and host a group, and I hope many of you will as well. We'll also have an opportunity on Wednesday night centered around a meal to be in a discipleship group that's paired with serving in Awana every other week. We hope to have a discipleship group opportunity every day of the week for those seven weeks. The groups will meet for three weeks to go over the material, have a week off for a service project, and then meet for another three weeks, and then they'll finish. We're also asking every existing Glenkirk small group to participate in this as well. Now, why is this important? Because discipleship is important. In Russell Moore's book, Losing Our Religion, Moore says that many people leaving the church, aren't leaving because they don't believe what the church teaches anymore. He says they're leaving because they've concluded that the people in the church don't believe what the church teaches. And that's a failure in discipleship. Seeing as many people as, part, as possible participate in these discipleship groups will be a key part of our discipleship strategy moving ahead. So our goal is to see 250 people in these groups. The last two church-wide goals relate to the love part of our mission statement, especially loving our world. Loving our world. 
The, a third goal is to engage in ministry to people experiencing homelessness. Once again, homelessness is a growing crisis in our community. And I'll leave the, the politics and causes of that crisis to the politicians to hash out. But our call is to love those who are in need. And if you've been at Glenkirk for any length of time, you already know that we in this church have a rich history of ministry to people experiencing homelessness. People from Glenkirk started Shepherd's Pantry and sowing seeds. And for years during the winter months, we would host 200 people experiencing homelessness who would live on our campus for two weeks during the winter shelter program. I'm proposing that over the next 12 months, we discern how God might be leading us to once again become a leading church in this community to minister to people experiencing homelessness. Maybe it'll be getting ready to participate in the winter shelter program when the East San Gabriel Coalition for the Homeless relaunches the program in 2025, which is what they've told us that they're going to do. Maybe it'll be restarting our open arms ministry where Glenkirk provided a meal and a shower once a month. Or maybe partnering with the city as they move forward with plans to build an affordable housing project that includes emergency shelter. I don't know what it'll look like. But I believe God is calling us to love our world in this way. The final goal also relates to loving the world to provide training for new lay counselors to relaunch our lay counseling ministry. We are living in the midst of a major mental health crisis. More than ever before, people are struggling. People are struggling in their relationships, are struggling with grief and anxiety, marital distress, depression, loneliness, confusion about their identity. And part of loving our world is showing how the Christian message can help with these struggles. And throughout the years, Glenkirk has had an amazing lay counseling ministry. Lay counseling is not designed to be a substitute for professional help or for medication. It's alongside of that. But our number of lay counselors has dwindled. And about six months ago, Pastor Kate and I met with some of the leaders of this ministry to discern the path moving forward. Is it time to sunset this ministry or, or is God leading us to once again engage? And we sense that holding a training to begin to recruit new lay counselors would be the best way for us to move forward to inject new life in this important ministry at a time and at a season when our community desperately needs it. It's another way to love the world. Now, these four goals aren't the only things that we're going to do this next year. We'll continue working with La Casa Church to ensure their success and eventual autonomy as a congregation. We'll continue working hard in ministry to kids and students, men and women. We'll continue doing Awana and Vacation Bible School. We'll continue working with other churches in our area for the good of our community. And as long as we're united, in the who and the why, our common mission, we can tackle these things together. We live in a new season in our culture. And we can rage against the change, longing with nostalgia for the past. 
or we can give God what we have, even if it's less than we had a decade ago, and trust that our abundant and generous God will ensure that the oil doesn't run out until we've done all that God wants us to do. Nothing more and nothing less. What's the state of the church at Glenkirk? It's the promise of God's abundance during a season that seems scarce. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story. And thank you that you are present in seasons of abundance and seasons of scarcity, that you are the same God. And Father, thank you that as we respond to you in faith and follow you in obedience, that the oil of provision keeps flowing to do all that you would have us to do. Nothing more and nothing less. So we ask that you would use us, unite us around our mission, God, and send us to do the work that you have called us to do in this community, in this country, in this world, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.